to Our Kids in Mind. I'm Jane Gilmore. And I'm Bettina Honan. We wrote The Incredible Teenage Brain Book because we wanted to make neuroscience accessible to adults supporting teens so that the young people in their care could have a better future. We firmly believe in the power of conversation. As Dan Siegel said, conversation is a sorting space for ideas. And with that in mind, we've reached out to other JKP authors and put our shared passion for young people's well-being at the heart of our conversation. In each podcast episode, as we marinate in our guests' expertise, we build bridges between our respective books and debate different approaches. So, join our conversation as we dip into some incredible books about young people. So today we are so thrilled to introduce Dr. Tony Atwood. Dr. Tony, as I see he's referred to online, is a world expert in the field of autism and Asperger's syndrome with numerous books and academic publications on topics related to ASD, including the go-to book for any new parent in this field, The Complete Guide to Asperger's Syndrome. It's very exciting for Jane and I, who have followed um, Tony's work since we were students. Tony is British, but he lives in Australia and he's um, joining us from um, Australia. He is a professor at Griffiths University and a highly sought after clinician and is really prolific in offering resources and information about ASD to families. So his recent book is 10 Steps to Reducing Your Children's Anxiety on the Autism Spectrum, the CBT-based Fun with Feelings Parent Manual, and it's co-authored with Michelle Garnett and others. So, Tony, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I, I thought that was lovely. It sort of um, stops me retiring. <laughs> so the first question, we feel really passionately, Jane and I, about sharing the teenage brain neuroscience with adults caring for teens so that they could improve the environment for young people in their care. We wondered if you could start by just telling us a little about what prompted you to write your most recent book, and maybe even a little about the book itself, just for the listeners who maybe haven't read it yet. It's a book on anxiety and autism. Yeah. Anxiety is not in the diagnostic criteria, but it is in the life of that autistic person. And the first signs can be there almost from infancy of high levels of anxiety which builds up through the primary school years and can reach a peak in adolescence, especially around puberty. The intensity of anxiety can be horrendous. But when I talk to adults on the spectrum and I say, which dimension of your daily concerns would you wish you could get rid of? Often it's the anxiety rather than the autism side. And when I'm dealing with what we call challenging behavior in autism, I'm looking at what emotion drives the behavior and the behavior can be control it can be meltdowns it can be a whole range of things that occur that if you could alleviate anxiety you would alleviate not only a lot of stress for that person in the day but also a lot of autistic coping mechanisms for high levels of anxiety so in writing the book it really comes from clinical experience of realizing we need to get in early we need to if we can start with four-year-olds who are showing anxiety and parents are saying, look, I've got my speech therapist, I've got my OT and so on, but how on earth do I help with the meltdowns, the anxiety, the rituals, the routines and so on. So we really needed something that focused 
on anxiety in young children as a foundation, really, for later uh, value. Yeah, I have to say when we when we when when we read it, you know, Jane and I commented, it's just such an important important topic, and actually, it's amazing in a way it hasn't been talked about so explicitly before. It really is very very important. I really agree with you. Mm. It's like all good ideas. Why hasn't it been done before? That was the question. Well, it has now. So I, I yeah, that <laughs> they're actually well. It's a it's a starting point. It's seminal in a way. There have been programs on anxiety and autism at different ages but not quite so young yeah um and this is is new territory because you're often working with parents rather than teachers and teachers have an educational approach but parents may not have that and also Mm. we are aware that anxiety may exist within the family and this can be another factor in anxiety management yeah I mean, that really brings me to the next question was, you know, because certainly when we were writing the Teenage Brain book, we were pulling together evidence-based family functioning kind of support with the Teenage Brain Neuroscience. And what 10 Steps does is it really creates a wonderful synergy between good evidence-based CBT principles for managing anxiety, and it places it very firmly in the world of a young person with ASD you know, drawing in the parental toolkit and so on. And it's just wonderful. So I wondered if you could say something more, give some examples about why this book is so different from other anxiety books. What is it in, you know, in nuts and bolts that uh, a parent or a teacher might do when they open up the book that can help the young person with ASD? Now, anxiety exists in the general population. and We have a number of books to help that. But in autism, you've got to look at different dimensions. One is sensory sensitivity. Sensory sensitivity and anxiety go together. You're anxious because you're going to have aversive sensory experiences. And then that anxiety increases the sensitivity to sensory experiences. So often when we're treating anxiety, we need to look at some of the causes, sensory sensitivity, and then reducing the sensory sensitivity by reducing the anxiety. But you also have features such a separation anxiety, and this is an autistic feature, that the child finds life overwhelming, confusing, anxiety creating, uncertainty, and all sorts of things going to occur. But what you discover is mum is the person to read my environment, translate it, and mm. soothe and calm me. And now in preschool, she's gone. No one else can do it. With typical kids, the teacher or other kids, within five, ten minutes, soothe, use compassion and a whole range of things, and and they're okay. Not for autistic kids. That separation anxiety is mum's the only one who can do it. But there are other dimensions in autism, and that is performance anxiety. It's fear of making a mistake. And it's interesting, when I look at this reaction to making a mistake, it's not being imposed by teachers or peers, or parents, it's often self-imposed expectation levels. But there are other dimensions related to autism, Um, alexithymia, the uh, difficulty in converting thought and emotion to speech. And so the trouble with psychologists is they talk too much. (laughs) 
They love. I don't know what you mean, Tony. (laughs) They love looking at each other and gassing on, and that's not the autistic way. It's it's social, emotional, conversational, Uh, and that creates particular challenges. So we are using puppets and and wonderful names Mm. for puppets, etc. I love the raspberries and the watermelons. They're absolutely (laughs) inspiring. Worried watermelon. You can't get better than that, surely. They they were great fun. I mean, you've got. Hang on. We've got. Happy Henry the Honeydew, Sad Sally the Strawberry, Worried Wanda the Watermelon, Relaxed Ryan the Raspberry, Angry Alan the Apple, and Loving Lulu the Lemon. So (laughs) you're not face to face. You're focusing on the puppets, which is far less confrontational. So um, it's important also to make emotions fun, because normally when I work with the kids, they're scared of emotions. They don't want to release them. They get them into trouble. They're, they're not good parts of, of me. So it's having a sense of detachment with the, the various uh, fruit, but also that learning about emotions is fun, not necessarily a default, but it also means that we're working to prevent a lot of coping mechanisms, including control and PDA, pathological demand avoidance, because a large part of that is based on I want to control my life. You tell me what to do. No, that means I have no control. I will defy it deliberately because otherwise I surrender my control. So if we don't have constructive ways to deal with anxiety, we are going to find maladaptive ways that are going to be of concern. it really is. It's for, you know the 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 the, ish, the um, inspirational way that parents are empowered to start this process of understanding anxiety was really my takeaway experience of reading the book. You know, here you have some tools, parents, and you can start the process of understanding emotions. I think that was just you know is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of our work, isn't it, is uh, with um, these families of young children when they get a diagnosis is really helping the parents to understand parents want to know what to do mm. and we do know what to do actually like we know so much more don't we than our parents that our parents did you know the generation before so it's just such a fantastic way of handing that to the parents um and, and that in a way that was kind of the one of the basis of our next book. we've got another book coming out tony Um, It's called How to Have Incredible Conversations with Your Child. And it really has come out of, um, you know, the work that we've done for many years as clinicians with families. Um, And it's offering a kind of series of conversations for parents and carers to build their relationship together. At the end of each conversation, um, there's a kind of space for families to reflect. And it was actually quite last minute. I don't know if you found that when you write books, that you kind of have an idea about what's going to be in the book. And then at the last minute, there's something that added, you know, that actually feels really, really positive. So this space for reflection was something we added really at the 11th hour. A few, um, a few night, all nighters, Jane, wasn't it? So, um, <laughs> so, but, but the connection really with with your book is that we see that there's lots of opportunity for reflecting in your book, and we wondered why you chose to do that and why you think that's helpful for families. I, I think because the autistic person has to discover it themselves. Mm. There's going to be a resistance to being informed of this is what you do. It, it's almost like the what I call the Frank Sinatra syndrome, my way. 
and I will have credibility and take it on board if I discover it rather than you tell me what to do. Wow, so they need so that revelation, that road to Damascus experience of, ah, I get it now. But it's something that they must achieve rather than you impose. Yeah, so true, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just to really process and personalize it and own own it. It's not, I suppose it's another way of learning, isn't it? We don't just learn by reading and taking in. We learn by kind of working out, how does that fit with me? And only by asking the question, does that, you know, that knowledge and that awareness become evident to the to the parent or the person reflecting. And so that space to ask the question is the is the the wonderful part of it. Yeah. Superb. Yeah. And and I think if the child can put it in their own words, they're more likely to remember it. Otherwise it's just auditory memory. It's it's a creative experience. There's an emotional component to it. And once you've got emotion associated with those verbal descriptions, you've got something that is going to stay in mind, but it's also more retrievable in many ways. So it, it is the best way. But what I've discovered often in autism, you've got to wait for processing time and don't right. interrupt while they're processing. Otherwise, they're going to go right back to the beginning. So when the person looks blank, it's because they're reconfiguring. That this is a paradigm shift. This is something very important. And just let the person in their own time, in their own way, assimilate that new information. That really reminds me of something that I feel we're always saying, um, or I'm, you know, in the talks and things that we do for parents is actually there's a lot of listening required, I think particularly in the teenage years, but also, as you say, in the context of neurodiversity, it's allowing somebody that time to process and not jumping in. And sometimes it's more comfortable to jump in and fix things or give a solution or, um, but actually allowing that space for reflection and somebody to process it in terms of what it's so important, isn't it? Yes. And this is what I do in, in psychological therapy. Um, let the person cogitate, let them think. Mm. And, and it's not embarrassing or uncomfortable to have silence because the mm. person is processing. When we do the IQ test, often one of the greatest difficulties is processing time. And then we need to incorporate that in therapy because the person is having to process cognitively linguistically and socially on three dimensions which is going to take longer this reminds me of a family that i have been working with um where the young boy he's around 10 and what he does with his friend is he counts the awkward silences i think he didn't understand that whether these silences were okay or weren't okay. So he, they would literally go along on a walk and they would start counting the silences, one, two, and sometimes they would get up to 300 and something. It was a way of dealing with, or trying to understand the kind of social and emotional world. And then he started doing it with his dad. He said, let's count. And, and his dad said to him, we don't need to. It's okay. You know, we can just be silent. Yeah, but I, I would add another dimension to that, an autistic dimension is you can have a connection without speech. Mm, yeah. And those with autism are often very good at almost at a sixth sense of picking up the atmosphere. And you mm. don't need to talk. They are aware of your mental state, whether you're happy or sad or et cetera. So there is still a connection, even if you're not talking. 
And I think that idea of just, you know, I think there's an expression, in fact, it was Bettina who, who led me to this um, expression, just witnessing somebody's emotion, literally being in the same room is actually incredibly powerful. And I think giving parents or teachers or carers the confidence to know that that's a powerful intervention in itself is a very useful tool. And I think that, you know, that does come across in the idea of reflection and thought and just being alongside or being with the young person. And it allows them that space to have, you know, to, to compute, to shift, you know, to do whatever process they are managing without the added confusion of having to process some more auditory speech, you know? So it's a it's a really important yeah, I, point. Sometimes when I'm talking to the kids and teenagers, they'll I'll say, okay, what do you want your parents to do and not do in various emotions? And they say, don't interrogate me. <laughs> And that's what parents do. What's the matter? What's the problem? And and I'll fix yeah. it for you. And what is it? Why are you doing that? And you're, and you're thinking, whoa. Yeah. Just back off. Don't yeah, absolutely. We communicate so much, don't we, in terms of the questions we ask young people? Because mm-hmm. it comes from our anxiety, actually. <laughs> as a professional, you can have that emotional detachment. But as a parent, you can't. Yeah. And and this brings back the ghosts of other sources of conflicts, worry about the future. How am I going to manage this situation, the context, etc. There's also, unfortunately, in autism, a genetic component of a high level of anxiety in parents. What I say is that the autistic child has inherited a predisposition for high levels of anxiety. But due to problems with interoception, they don't pick up the signals at low level to fix it when it's easy. And so that's a problem. So when they are inheriting that characteristic, they're not good at picking it up. And their toolbox, their fixing, is deprived of effective tools of affection, disclosure, compassion, are sometimes overwhelming and counterproductive. So that they are likely to inherit, not picking it up easily, and have fewer repair mechanisms. You know, it, it, as you're talking, it's making me think about the way that you hold this balance between saying, look, these are some of the challenges in, in autism. And here's some of the optimistic um, uh, ways that we can consider this. And I, I, you know, both Bettina and I have been really struck by the optimism in the way that you write, not just this book, but throughout your, your bibliography. And it's something we really identified with because as we were writing the Teenage Brain book, we were really clear about wanting to reframe the much maligned teenager and be optimistic and say, look, this is an extraordinary period of life. So we, we, we really applaud that idea. So I've got two questions here. It's a part A and a part B. So the part A is, could you possibly write an anxiety book for teenagers with ASD? Anytime <laughs> you've got a moment, it'll be perfect. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We know that this is a very successful, 10 Steps is a very successful book looking at how to support a young person in the early primary years who has autism and ASD. How might you describe the differences and similarities between your other publication, which looks at supporting a young person in the teenage years who has autism and ASD? Now, this is an audio recording, so you you can't see, as I've got in front of me, a, a book called Exploring Feelings. Cognitive Behaviour Therapy to Manage Anxiety by just me, published by Future Horizons in the United States. It was the seminal CBT study of anxiety in autistic children. It's had four 
independent randomized control trial evaluations all said great there are about mm. six programs now um but if i was going to do one on teenagers there are a number of things that i would change or add to it first of all the value of group work because when i work with a group of teenagers with an issue of anxiety when the other guys come up with suggestions first of all they have far more credibility and they also want to express their successes with those in the group and friendships are formed so normally we tend to do this on family and 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 child i would use groups i also with teenagers very much would use the metaphor of the special interest like doctor who and imagine your doctor who and there's this monster that feeds on anxiety and enslaves people what would doctor who do so i would use the special interest as a metaphor also a lot more on meditation and yoga it's a lot easier for, for teenagers i get a third a third a third a third go to yoga and meditation fantastic where have you been all my life a third go all oh, okay i'll give it a try and it works and there's a third i'm sorry it won't work no matter how much you push it it's often those who are spending a lot of their life containing and suppressing their anxiety and when you take that away they are in a deluge of anxiety and they can't cope with it so that's another group also i would go through with the teenagers anxieties worrying about what could happen depression is you know what's going to happen it's going to be bad so depression can evolve sorry anxiety can evolve into depression i'd also use a lot more of the arts with the alexithymia don't know how to express your things right create for me a playlist of music that in the lyrics or the music it describes your feelings go to google Im- images type in worried anxious you'll have 500 images of anxiety choose 10 images that represent your sadness um it's a drawing it's it's using the arts and this is where some with autism have successful careers in the arts because it's their way of expressing the self and their feelings it's not always information technology and accountancy no it's the arts because mm-hmm. it's the way of expressing the self and also i would focus on a controversial area in a way i call it empathic attunement and this originally came from talking to adults and autobiographies that i was there with simon baron cohen and uta frith uta was my phd supervisor i know simon and and theory of mind is fantastic yes and there is great difficulty in a formal assessment of looking at facial expressions and what's happening here i don't know but many with autism are very sensitive to negative mood in others and they get infected by it this is covid anxiety and they very quickly become infected by anxiety in other people and they haven't got a shield to protect themselves from it but when i ask where did this anxiety come from the teenager will say oh hang on i i think it, what in my life has no ah rebecca rebecca's anxious oh that's it i spent lunch break with rebecca that was it she infected me with her anxiety gosh as as you're talking through those those um 
shifts in making uh, an anxiety book specific for teenagers. I'm really struck by the way you've you've really identified peer group, um, you know, using different creative means, allowing self-reflection, being aware how powerful the, you know, the, the contagious aspect of a peer group experience might be. It really is the teenage experience across the general population, but perhaps writ large in those young people with ASD. So those shifts and those um, those um, adaptations are really very, they're chiming really with me very clearly. <laughs> they, yeah. they very much chime with your book because when you've got teenagers with anxiety, one of the issues is bullying and teasing. However, what's far worse psychologically is rejection and humiliation. Mm. especially humiliation and in your book you go through that superbly but with autism you really do have to focus on the long-term mm. psychological effects of rejection those with autism and the teenagers want to connect i want to connect but who do i connect with and they're desperate for connection and so rejection is far more powerful for them mm. The other thing that I'm, you know, as you were talking about the special interest, I think it's, you know, and you describe the special interest as really a superpower in lots of ways, that that might be a way to connect, you know, whether it's Doctor Who or whether it's, you know, whatever that special interest might be, there might be a way of connecting with another young person on the basis of that. It's a, it's a graded exposure start. And I think not not being afraid of using a special interest in a positive way is a springboard to other things, whether it's a blocking technique for anxiety or whether it's a way of connecting with other young people I think may be one way of of making connections. One of the characteristics of, of autism is a fascination with metaphor and if you can use a metaphor with their special interest you've got motivation you've got conceptualization and you've got a positive approach because it's something they're familiar with so I weave in the special interest as often as I can from Harry Potter <laughs> I'm a Harry Potter fan, to all sorts of things. And, and Doctor Who, um, and, and you, you can't see because this is an audio recording, but my iPhone has a TARDIS wrapped around. <laughs> so what we talk about in our book is um, the fact that the teenage years is a time to push and find your edge when exploring and risk-taking are adaptive now, this can be a really hard adjustment for parents, as much of early parenting is really about protection. So one of the things that really struck us about your book is that you point out that young people with ASD and anxiety need both accommodation and protection from their parents and exposure to the anxiety-provoking situation in order to increase their coping skills. It seems to us this is one of the hardest parts of parenting a child with ASD. How do you, how can you kind of help parents to get really skilled at this? Good point. I have to convince <laughs> mum to back off <laughs> because mum has got to pick up the pieces. Mum has got to deal with the effect on the family, the meltdown, the despair, because if it goes wrong, it's going to go wrong so badly. And so that is, in psychological terms, a punishment. When things have gone wrong, Mum's had to pick up the pieces. It's been most unpleasant for her. So she doesn't want the same experiences again. So she'll often be very protective. Now, that includes in daily living skills as well as, as risk-taking. And then the kid goes, well, mum does such a good job. Why should I try and do it? Because she's so good at it. 
And this inhibits resilience and independence. And you need resilience and, and an independent mind to cope with anxiety and life's challenges, which means that there can be a delay in leaving home and almost being protected to a level where it's actually being causing, I think, psychological harm. Yeah, I'm I'm always struck by that, I have to say. And, and there's something about the word anxiety, isn't there, that co- that induces in the other person protect. And I have to, you know, stop them feeling that. And it's really shifting that idea of anxiety and saying, yes, the anxiety is there. This is hard for you and you can do it. And I think that, that it's just really complicated in the context of neurodiversity when a parent themselves is trying to get their head around, but what bit do I allow? What bit is part of their neurodiversity? And what bit do I push? It's just, it's so hard, isn't it? I mean, what we do is, is, is we'll work with uh, mum and say the teenager on a ladder. Uh, at the top of the ladder is the most difficult anxiety provoking situation. And then in the bottom rung, is something which is fairly reasonable in terms of achievement. And we create a plan. And in autism, nothing succeeds like success. Although there's a fear of failure, there's enormous delight in getting it right. So we start on um, a stairway, in a way, and go up through the rungs to identify greater ability to cope. But we start at a low level, relatively easy. Congratulate everybody. Off to the next step. Mm, So good. I think it's it's also that confidence about knowing there will be a tricky time and it's going to be all right. It, particularly, you know, having in mind the comment about that many parents with a young person with autism may also have traits of anxiety themselves. And so seeing that anxiety may be very anxiety provoking in a person who is already tending towards anxiety. So there's a you know a perfect storm in many ways. But the way you're delivering that, you're allowing that confidence to say, look, there might be a moment of anxiety. You can push through it and we'll have a small step beyond. It won't be a, you know, a great leap. It will be a small step so we can celebrate that success. And so everybody's anxiety is contained with that, that step-by-step plan. Okay, Tony, I think we may have reached our last hurrah. This is our final <laughs> question. If you have yeah. any energy left. Um, certainly for Bettina and I, we found writing books, you know, a real learning experience for lots of reasons. We learn about the science, and the literature, but also as a personal learning process, essentially. Now, you've got an extensive bibliography. Um, what did you learn from writing this latest book, 10 Steps? Working as a team, um, because you, once you have a diverse team, you can bring in new bits of information. Of course, the management of that team is another dimension. Because you've got egos, you've got priorities, you've got all sorts of things. So you you have to manage the team effectively. But you then have access to a perspective and you think, wow, that's I hadn't thought of that. That goes in the book. So it's working as a team. Um, And it's also um, what's important that I've I've learned is to have a really good publisher and yes. that's why Jessica Kingsley publishes it. Basically, they're the best. And I've also learned, ask Jessica Kingsley to do good quality paper when they print the books, because there's been mm. huge variation. But when you pick up a book that is artistically well laid out, the quality of the actual paper itself, 
the feel of it, the smell of it. it. If you're buying a product and there's a beauty in that product, and that's really looking at the publisher to create something that you're proud of and other people will enjoy buying. That's very interesting, just picking up on the sensory experience of the book, you know, given your, your population. And I absolutely agree with that. I think it's a beautiful experience to pick up a book um, if it's if it's thought through um, as carefully as, as it can be, which it certainly is in, in the case of JKP. And also, I would also um, suggest that working in a team, certainly from Bettina and I, and w- working with Tara for that book and working with Bettina for our upcoming book, working in a team is the way to write a book in our view. I think it's a lonely business otherwise. And I think that that is a really wonderful piece of advice. Yeah. And I love, I love what you say about, you know, a neurodiverse team because we all have different things that we bring to the team Mm. and then together, what an incredible brain we are when there's a number of different brains all working together. As I read your books, and I know I'm not alone in this comment, it feels as though you're in the room. And I think actually the conversational quality of the text is really what allows families to use them so effectively. Um, And so I think keep doing what you're doing because it's a wonderful resource for us all to have. Absolutely, It it is my voice and it's my clinical voice. So Mm. when I write, I imagine somebody listening to this rather than reading it and and once the personality comes across it i think it is more engaging it's nothing i have deliberately cultured it's something that was there right from the beginning but it does make a difference Mm, i think so absolutely well listen i think that brings us to the end of our podcast we have been just thrilled and delighted to have your company today it's been a real joy for us and an inspiration I hope um, for many people to pick up the book that's currently around but perhaps some of your previous volumes too Um, we're very grateful for your time and thank you for being with us today in the next episode we'll be talking about everyday things that teachers students and parents can all do to make their schools happier and healthier with Pookie Knight-Smith, specialist in child and adolescent mental health and author of, among many others, The Mentally Healthy Schools Workbook. <music>